our major advances have been in prevention and acute care management. In prevention, we clearly understand much better the role of the risk factors and how you manage them. We have incredible evidence that controlling blood pressure, managing your diabetes, eating right, taking your meds, managing your salt. Those are modifiable risk factors. We have overwhelming evidence now that individuals who control those factors actually have less risk of having a stroke or heart disease. Welcome to Healthcare on the Horizon. I'm your host, Jeff Ostroff. Healthcare on the Horizon is about where things stand now with the prevention, diagnosis, and treatment of specific diseases and how things might change with those in the future. We hope you'll find the information here useful in an educational sense, but also perhaps in a more personal way, should you, a family member, or a friend have one of the medical conditions we cover. Please note, the information shared on this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended as a substitute for the advice provided by your physician or any other healthcare professional. Hi, everybody. Have you or someone you care about had a stroke? Or maybe you're at risk of a stroke because of your health or your family history. Regardless, do you know what you can do to help prevent a stroke or minimize the damage caused by one? My guest expert, Dr. Pam Duncan, has spent 50 years focusing on strokes. To learn what she has to say about strokes and some of the advances we've seen and may yet see in preventing, diagnosing, or treating strokes, Please stay tuned for this episode of Healthcare on the Horizon. To learn more about Dr. Duncan, listen to the episode and be sure to check the show notes. And please don't forget to check out my other podcast, Looking Forward, Opportunities for Job, Career, Business, and Investment Seekers. Okay, let's get started. Well, hi, Pam. Welcome to Healthcare on the Horizon. Hello, Jeff. I am so excited to have you on because of the topic that you're speaking about and because of your recognized expertise on that topic. I'll mention this probably soon enough, why this topic is so important to me. But before I get into that, Pam, can you please tell us just a little bit about your educational background, your work experience, and when and why you came to Wake Forest University School of Medicine and the Baptist Medical Center? Yes, Jeff. So I graduated from physical therapy school 50 years ago. Wow. And I was very interested in stroke and stroke recovery. And the first job I had was at the Institute of Rehab Medicine in New York. And I was on the stroke unit. And I have been on a trajectory of trying to improve stroke recovery and stroke care for the last 50 years. I've had numerous research grants in my career collectively over $100 million of funding to try to bring the best evidence to practice and transform the way that we think about stroke recovery, stroke prevention, but it's always been very patient-centered. I've had a number of academic positions at Duke University, at the University of Kansas, University of Florida, and in 2011, I actually was thinking of transitioning to retirement, but was recruited to wait to really build stroke programs focusing in research on recovery. So that's what got me to wake. And during that 
tenure. I was involved in understanding readmissions and why people were being readmitted to the hospital. At that time, it was a great learning experience. We collaborated with CMS to understand why we had such high readmissions, not just for stroke, but for congestive birth or pneumonia. And the real drivers of readmissions are not always the quality of the health care, but it's the patients, what we call social and functional in terms of health. They can't afford their medications. They really don't have the health literacy to understand the complexity of management, either prevention or recovery, and that we needed to think more globally and locally about transitional care. Once that patient leaves the hospital, how can we improve their trajectory recovery and secondary prevention? So that's how I got to Wake Forest and how I've built my career over the past 50 years, actually. Wow. Very interesting. The fact that you started out in physical therapy, that you were going to retire and, and now here it is 12 years later and you're still going strong. You've got a passion for this. I also want to add that we will put in the show notes about some of the awards that Pam has gotten. She's got some amazing awards that she isn't talking about, but everybody needs to know about. I also want to clarify for people, CMS, if you're not familiar with it, is Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Pam, this is where I'm going to get a little bit personal. I want to ask you about the different kinds of strokes. My mother of blessed memory, probably the person I love the most in my life, she first had mini strokes. She had type 2 diabetes, which by the way, I have. She was on insulin, I'm not. But she had type 2 diabetes for many years and may have had some blood pressure issues. So she had these TIAs, these transitional... Transit ischemic attacks. She had those. And then she had one stroke, a major, on one side. And then the second stroke, which was affecting the other side of her brain, was a knockout punch. And that really did her in. So that's people why this is really important to me. I think about my mother and I think about my own health. Can you please let us know about, in layperson's terms, what are the different kinds of strokes, Pam? Yeah, there are two major types of stroke. Medically, we call the first one ischemic. And what that means is that you have little clots that cut off the supply of blood to certain areas of the brain, and you actually can have tissue death there in the brain. If you have small mini strokes, it's usually a cascade of little clots that are thrown to the brain, and they're very, very small, and you have symptoms, and then those symptoms usually go away within 24 hours. 85% of all strokes are ischemic strokes. In other words, it cuts off the blood vessel supply, the blood in the blood vessel. And those small strokes can be, over time, add up, or you can have major clots that close off those vessels and those often happen in major distribution to the area called the middle cerebral artery. And you really stop up the blood vessel and you can't get the adequate blood supply to the brain. So 85% of all strokes, either whether they're small or major, are called ischemic strokes. The other 15% of strokes are hemorrhagic strokes. The blood vessel ruptures and 
when the blood vessel ruptures, again, it influences the supply of the blood to the brain and the tissue dies. Those are the two types. The risk factors for both ischemic and hemorrhagic strokes are very similar. High blood pressure out of control is the number one factor that can be managed and reduce your risk of stroke. The blood pressure is a major factor that causes stroke. The other one, as you mentioned, is diabetes. People who have diabetes are at much higher risk. You also can have irregular heartbeats called atrial fib, another major cause of stroke. So the major causes of strokes are really high blood pressure, diabetes, and atrial fib. And then you have other factors that increase your risk of having strokes, and certainly smoking is a major cause. So those are the things. But blood pressure control is extremely important, as well as managing your cholesterol. Very, very helpful information. Pam, just to follow up on that, with TIAs, those mini strokes, are they predictors often of a major stroke or can somebody have TIAs and never die from a stroke? Well, people can have TIAs and never die, but usually they are the big harbanger of the big ones. There, You're just getting small TIAs and then you're more likely to get the big one. The really important message, though, that unfortunately I've seen in my career is that patients often present to the hospital or to the doctor with TIAs and the symptoms resolve very quickly, but they say, oh, I'm, I dodged the bullet, right? And so when they start having signs of a larger stroke, they ignore them. It's very important when you have symptoms of a stroke that you actually seek medical care immediately because we do have some therapies that can dissolve that clot. Or if you have the big clot called in the middle cerebral artery, for example, you can go in and retrieve that clot with a thrombectomy. So it's very important that you don't ignore the symptoms of minor stroke or if you recovered after the quote-unquote little strokes, when you start having new symptoms, you must, must seek medical attention. And we have huge campaigns to educate people about that that you have facial drink, you have arm weakness, and you have blurred speech, for example, the fast rules. So time is brain. Anytime you start getting a facial droop, you have trouble talking, or you have weakness in your arm and leg that comes on abruptly, we use the fast. You fast face, arm, leg weakness, and speech, and time. Immediately call GO 911. Yeah. Do not ignore those symptoms. Don't ignore them. And I know time is so critical, so critical. With my mother, the first indication of many strokes, Pam, was falls. Yeah. People may have instability and balance problems. Yes, that's right. Exactly. I don't know if you're able to quantify about how many people globally get strokes or perhaps you only have it in for the United States. In the United States, over 800,000 people experience a stroke each year. Wow. But in globally, it's, if you add all these up, the regions in the world that have the highest incidence of stroke are actually in China and in the Asian countries, uh, a very, very high incidence. The other thing that's really important to note is African-American, especially African-American men, have a much higher risk of stroke than whites. So 
Stroke does discriminate. We have an area in the country called the Stroke Belt, which is a southern region of the United States. I live in the Stroke Belt, North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia. That Those areas have the highest incidence of stroke of any place in the U.S., but China also has a high incidence. But yes, African Americans have a higher incidence of stroke than whites. Pam, do we know why certain people like African Americans and people who live in China, and I don't know if that applies to Asians in the United States, if that's more related to the Chinese, do we know why people are more prone based on their ethnic background or racial background or whatever? To be quite honest, after all these years, we do not know. There's a very well-known study, the REGARD study, managed and run by a dear colleague, George Howard, who's concentrating on this answering that question. Why do African-Americans have a higher incidence of stroke than non-African-Americans? And to be quite honest, we don't know at this time. Certainly diet may play a major role in your risk of stroke, but we are looking for different potential contributors. And I can't say with any certainty that we know why. Yeah, I'm struck by the Asians, the Chinese. But the Asians and the African-Americans, especially African-American men, have a much higher prevalence of hypertension. And since hypertension is the major driver, that's it. So hypertension is a mechanism, but why do African-Americans become more hypertensive? If we all live long enough, we're going to become hypertensive. That's why as you age the probability of having a stroke increases, right? Because as you age, you're more likely to have hypertension. Now, we've got new standards for managing hypertension and the SPRINT trial run by Dr. Jeff Williamson established that really, if you want to prevent a stroke or cognitive decline, you should keep your blood pressure managed at 120 over 80. If you had had a stroke, your minor TIAs like your mother had, we set the target at 130 over 80. So monitoring your blood pressure. In fact, I'm so obsessive, I monitor my blood pressure every day. But monitoring your blood pressure by sitting quietly, you have to sit very quietly for about five minutes and take three readings. So the best thing that you can do to prevent a stroke is take your blood pressure just like you brush your teeth, sit quietly, take three readings, and then Keep it within 130 over 80. If you're soaring up, you should seek care from your primary care physician. And of course, if your blood pressure is extremely high, over 180, 100, you need to call for medical attention right away. So knowing the range of blood pressure is probably the best thing anyone can do to help manage their risk. Unfortunately, or fortunately, I don't know, but we have lots of medications that will help you control your blood pressure. And the most important thing to do is to be on antihypertensive medications if you have high blood pressure and take them religiously. Do not get to take your hypertension meds. Sure. Good tips. I'm curious, Pam, do we know yet from everything that you've been involved with for 50 years, how much of this is genetically driven? There is a higher risk of having a stroke if your family members have had a stroke, for sure. And again, we are trying to look at the genetic markers, but do we have a genetic marker? No. But clearly, if there is a family history of stroke and cardiovascular disease, you are at higher risk. Yeah. One follow-up question before we talk about some recent developments. Let's say you've got an individual 
who has very good blood pressure, but perhaps, and I'm thinking of myself selfishly here, they have type 2 diabetes. It's controlled. They're still at a greater risk. Is like that high blood pressure really the most important thing? Or if you have some of these secondary or other conditions, could it necessarily not matter as much that you have good blood pressure? Well, yes, that's a good point. If you have diabetes, yes, you are at a risk and you have to manage the diabetes. So I do not want my message to be misconstrued. Yes, blood pressure you have to manage, but you also have to manage your diabetes. You really have to manage your overall health. So let me just tell you, for cognitive function, for you and I, for strong, there are three things that as we age or as we, we should accept these practices early, there, that you must do. And one is you need to exercise. You need to exercise 45 minutes a day, if at all possible, but a minimum of 150 minutes a week at vigorous, a moderately vigorous intensity. Get your heart rate up, exercise. The other thing that you need to do is eat right, the mind diet or the DASH diet. So basically the way you eat, and these are not hard diets to follow. So I don't even like to call them diets. I just want to say that you need to eat more vegetables and fruits and less meats. And the MIND diet, for example, it has without any scientific doubt shown individuals who stay on the MIND diet have a lower risk of cognitive decline and the DASH diet also decreases your risk of stroke and improves your blood pressure. So walking, just even getting out and walking and strolling for 40 or 45 minutes a day, you don't have to do it at one time. You can do it in 10 or 15 minute episodes. And then those are the two key factors for managing risk of stroke. And the third factor is to be socially engaged is to not sit in lonely isolation. That really contributes to cognitive decline. So everybody's looking for the magic bullet in life. But if you're hypertensive, you need to take your high blood pressure medicine. That alone is not sufficient. You need to exercise, eat the DASH slash or MIND diet, and be socially engaged. And that is true for diabetes as well. You need to manage your hemoglobin A1C, your blood sugars, and you need to get up and you need to get moving. Uh, now, the tangential point, I, with my cardiology friend, Dr. Delane Kitzman, in patients who have congestive heart failure, we designed a pilot study that demonstrated that even people who've been hospitalized with highly poorly managed congestive heart failure, if we can get them up and moving and exercise, work on their strength, balance, endurance, we could actually improve their quality of life. We could improve their function. And right now we've just commenced a large national study to see if we get patients, even with compromised cardiovascular function like congestive heart failure, which obviously blood pressure often parallels that as well. If we get them up and we get them moving, movement matters. I totally agree. I really hope you're enjoying this episode so far. If you are, can you please do me a small favor? Let some of your family members, friends, or others in your network know about it and about healthcare on the horizon. If you happen to like this podcast, my interviewing approach, or perhaps even my voice, please consider checking out some of the many services 
My Business Provides. These include podcast hosting, creation and consulting, voiceovers, professional interviewing, production of audio or video promotional profiles to help you sell your business, promote your services, increase your customers, or raise funding, and services to help you market to the large and growing seniors population. That's something I've actually written a book about. To learn more about all of this and my other podcast, Looking Forward, Opportunities for Job, Career, Business, and Investment Seekers, please visit www.jeff-ostroff.com. You can also email me at jeff at jeff-ostroff.com. Pam, for those who aren't familiar with the two diets that you're mentioning, can you quickly let everybody know what is the DASH diet? I know it's sodium somewhat restricted diet and the MIND diet. Then standards are you want to restrict your sodium to less than 2,000 milligrams a day. But it's not just about restricting sodium. It's eating vegetables and fruit. Look at your plate. Two-thirds of your plate should be vegetables and fruit. And it's really cutting back on red meats. It's not denying you red meats, but you should be eating a lot of fish and a lot of poultry if that's if that's your meat. And so they're very, very similar. But again, what you eat matters. Diet matters. Movement matters. And as I talk to patients about, and I deal primarily with patients who've had a stroke, and I say, okay, if you had cancer, someone told you had cancer, you would go take chemotherapy, which would have a high risk. Well, what I'm saying to you, you've had a stroke. Think about your medicine is eat right, eat the dash or Mediterranean diet and move, exercise, move every day. There are less side effects of that than taking terrible chemotherapies and you will do it to save your life. Actually, as you well know, cardiovascular disease is your number one killer in the country and stroke now is now fifth, but you have to think about stroke and cardiovascular disease alike. So eat right, eat more fruits and vegetables and chicken and fish and those type of things. I don't think you can go wrong with any of that preventively or even after the fact. Pam, on Healthcare on the Horizon, we like to take a look at any new developments, recent developments in whatever the disease or disorder is that we're talking about today, it's strokes. If you bring us up to the current day, what are some developments either in prevention, diagnosis, or treatment of strokes? Well, certainly in a 50-year career, it's certainly changed than forever. I would say that our major advances have been in prevention and acute care management. In prevention, we clearly understand much better the role of the risk factors and how you manage them. We have incredible evidence that controlling blood pressure, managing your diabetes, eating right, taking your meds, managing your salt, those are modifiable risk factors. We have overwhelming evidence now that individuals who control those factors actually have less risk of having a stroke or heart disease. The other thing in there, we understand the range of what we accept as normal blood pressure. It used to be, oh, if you've got a blood pressure of 140 over 80, that's good. No, we don't accept that anymore. 120 over 80. We serve, we've had major epidemiological studies. And I didn't mention that 
I went back to school and I'm an epidemiologist. I have a PhD in epidemiology as well. (laughs) So we've got major clinical trials and epidemiology studies that say the range of blood pressure control should be much lower. So we know these are factors that you can modify by managing your health and managing your blood pressure. So that's number one. In acute prevention, it's been transformative. In the last 20, 25 years, we started out by having what we call a clot buster drug called TPA. If you have a stroke, that's why it's important to get at the hospital. If you have symptoms, that we can break that clot up in some patients with a drug called TPA. But the biggest transformation has been thrombectomy, that the large vessel occlusion is what we call it. The blood clot is big, it's occluded the big vessel. The effects of that are devastating. You either die or have severe disability. Mm. But if you get to the hospital, we can actually go in and with the interventional radiologist, neurosurgeon, neurologist, they can pull that clot out and spare the brain damage. So those are all transformative. But here's the bad news. In thrombectomy, pulling the clot out, only 15% of the patients are eligible for that treatment. Mm. And of the people who get it, only 50% actually get substantial benefit. About 10 or 15% of the patients eligible for TPA also are only eligible. So those are transformative magic bullets that can work if you're eligible for that. But once you get the TPA or the thrombectomy, it doesn't change your, it may change your disability that can occur from the stroke, but it doesn't change your risk factor for another stroke. So you need to manage those risk factors, diabetes, smoking, hypertension, and poor lifestyle behaviors. Yeah. One of the other things that we like to do on healthcare on the horizon is look a little bit out into the future. And you're certainly at the vortex of a lot of what's going on with treatment of strokes and managing acute situations involving strokes. What are you seeing that might change the landscape maybe over the next decade or so? Are there things that are being worked on now, Pam, that might make it more possible for people to have effective treatment with the TPA or the thrombectomies or greater prevention approaches or whatever? Well, I don't know that prevention or hyperacute management. I would say that we've made substantial strides, but truly what's transformative if patients and individuals who are at risk take the responsibility of managing their health. I think we've messaged a lot in every dimension of life that we have been very successful, very successful in decreasing smoking in this country, but we also have to increase good lifestyles like exercise and eating right. So I think that is where you can be transformative, but that rests with the individual and how do we message appropriately and get to see the benefit. I think in terms of management, I have spent most of my career on the recovery side. And once you've had a stroke, once you've had a stroke and you haven't necessarily benefited from the magic bullets, how do we enhance recovery? So there's a lot of work being done now to understand what are the predictors of recovery 
and what interventions we might bring. We've had unfortunate decades of failure in what we call neuroprotective or neurorecovery drugs. We don't have a recovery drug. Will that be in the future? It might be. There are other recovery interventions that are being tested. I'm leading a trial now in neuromodulation, neurostimulation, stimulating the brain after the recovery, after the stroke to see if you can enhance the reorganization. When you have a stroke, you actually have a hole in the brain. You've had dead tissue. But we have a lot of neuroplasticity. The brain can circumvent those black holes or those areas that don't work. But how do we optimize that? That is the future of how do we facilitate neuroplasticity and neurorecovery. I personally am talking to you as a miracle. I didn't have a stroke, but I had a brain injury in April of 2020, right after I gave the David Sherman Award. I got on the bicycle, my driveway flipped it and hit my head on the cement border and had two brain bleeds. I was life flighted to the University of North Carolina. I was managed textbook. Everything was done right. My blood pressure was lowered appropriately. I got the right osmotic therapy. I was delivered to an ICU. They were able to control the bleeding. But I actually have brain damage from that. I don't hope you cannot detect that I have brain damage. No. But I was discharged from the hospital. It was in the middle of COVID. Woke up from a coma two and a half days. The next day, you have to leave the hospital because we got COVID patients coming in. And was discharged to an abyss, right? So I said, what's my follow-up? See your primary care doctor. I said, well, I had a brain injury. I don't know about this. But I spent my life in recovery and I knew what to do. So I was discharged home, but called the miracle of the week that I could Mm. talk and didn't have focal damage, but I had no balance. I had very little balance, couldn't walk very steady and was very lethargic. I'd get home. My body starts cramping. I was cognitively enough with it to say, whoa, something's wrong here. And what happened in trying to decrease the bleeding in the brain, it messed up my electrolytes. And I had potassium that was 2.3, which is legal, actually. But I had enough wherewithal to contact providers, my colleagues, to get potassium. But when I wanted therapy, they said, oh, well, you can walk. You don't need us. I said, well, actually, I don't walk very well. So I applied and have all the therapy friends who worked on my balance. And I started exercising rigorously at 80% heart rate max, and I recovered very quickly. Now, if I had not been Pam Duckin with all the resources and knowledge, I could very well have died and I certainly could not have had a recovery. But getting up and getting moving after a stroke, just like with congestive heart failure, is absolutely the most important thing that you can do to increase your probability of recovery. What a traumatic experience and what a powerful anecdote, a real life story about how you're knowing what to do because you're in the field and then you're doing the things you're advocating here, like exercising has brought you back to being somebody who, from my perspective, is fully recovered. I would never know anything. I would have no idea. No, you wouldn't. And now that as I approach retirement here at the end of the month, I haven't looked at my image as I, you said, another advance of the 50 years was obviously we can image the brain better. We can actually locate the, where the lesions are and the yeah. size of lesions. They're not always predictive of the outcome, but many times they are. So I actually plan to do a TED talk. This is my brain. 
<laughs> He's got two holes in it. But you uh. see, here I am. But I actually took on the course of managing my recovery and getting up, getting very aggressively moving and being engaged right away. Pam, what about the use of devices, adaptive devices for people who've had a stroke? Have you seen big changes in that? Where are we with that now? And where might we be going in the future with devices that help people who've had a pretty devastating stroke? Well, I could probably spend two hours talking about devices. <laughs> yes, okay. people need adaptive devices. They need walkers and need canes. We have been on a journey well over 15 to 20 years to try to get robotics, be able to help you move and improve your recovery. Body weight supported treadmill training, robotic therapy. Unfortunately, those interventions have not panned out to have the effect that we would like to give you highly robotic, repetitive movement to work, to move. I led one of the major studies on body weight supported treadmill and people who did get it actually did better, but people who were treated at home with much simpler approaches with the same intensity or frequency of being seen recovered as well. So we don't have the magic device. I think in the current studies that I'm involved with stimulating the brain, that may hold some future to improve in recovery, but we're not there with the evidence yet. And again, another thing is a lot of the efforts to really mimic movements by thinking are certainly on the horizon. So we may see transformative change in the future. Yes, something to certainly hope for. Pim, we like to provide our listeners with some tips on how they either themselves, if they've had a stroke or their family members or other caregivers who are assisting them, can help to deal with recovery and living life after a stroke. Would you be able to provide us with maybe another tip or two? You've talked a lot about blood pressure. You've talked a lot about exercise and diet. Is there anything else that you would tell people? Well, this is a lengthy discussion, but knowledge is the key to everything. It's the key to prevention, it's the key to getting care quickly, but it's also the key to recovery. So it's very critical that family members and patients know what services are available to them for recovery, whether they should go to a nursing home, a rehab hospital, they get home health therapies, or they get outpatient. And they should really know the quality of the services that they're being referred to. We have to use podcasts like this, and I'd like to come back and do one with you, Jeff, just on that, because that's a separate discussion that needs a lot of information. But patients and families have a right to actually advocate or, quite frankly, demand certain services for their family members and make sure that they know the quality of those services. So knowledge is everything, both in recovery and prevention and acute care management. We do have national campaigns from American Heart Association, Know the Symptoms of Stroke. Uh, you can go across any city in this country and you'll see billboards about the symptoms of stroke and get care quickly. That's important. But we also have to have the national campaign to know the risk factors and how you manage them. And most importantly, you've had a stroke. Now, what do I need to do to recover? You yes. can recover. I've worked for the last eight years on a program called Compass, Finding Your Way Forward for Recovery. 
north, south, east, or west. Know your numbers, know your blood pressure, know your hemoglobin A1C. Engage, get up, get moving, take your medicines, and ask for support, social support that you need it, and your willingness, your ability to manage your lifestyle behaviors. So a lot of the factors that we can do for recovery and prevention and getting to the hospital on time depend on the patient and the caregiver response. Good tips. Pam, where should our listeners go to find out more about strokes, about you, Wake Forest University School of Medicine and the Baptist Medical Center, anything else that you would like them to know about? Well, I think your go-to source is the American Heart Association has a lot of knowledge, information about prevention, about straight recovery. So your best bet is to go to the American Heart Association. If you are a stroke survivor, they have a Stroke Connect magazine. We have a lot of educational materials for stroke, but we're using them internally. If they wanted to learn more about you, is there a way where they could reach out? Well, I actually am retiring at June 30th. Okay. You can certainly email me directly, pduncan105 at gmail.com after June 30th. I am most concerned now about patients falling in this chasm after a stroke without adequate resources. So building a social media network as well as building a website for patients to go is required. Yes. And I applaud you. A lot of people, perhaps after doing something for a lot of years, might burn out of it. But you have not burned out at all. Here's my philosophy in life. We've made great strides, but we still have not arrived. And this is not the time to give up. And maybe in my course of academic retirement, I have more opportunity to build such a a website to work with partners like you for social media. We need to use social media to educate at the point of decision-making so patients and the families know what their rights are. I do have a new company, Care Directions, where we're trying to influence healthcare providers to ask the right questions of patients and their caregivers. Our goal is right care, right place, and right time. And that's true for post-acute care as well as acute care. But also get a community of advocates that will speak. That's how I plan to spend my retirement. We all deserve it. Yes. Again, I applaud you, Pam for what is a noble and much-needed mission that you're going to be pursuing as a second careerist myself. I strongly support that you're taking that passion and putting it to good use. And I thank you again for all this great information that you shared with us on Healthcare on the Horizon. It's been a pleasure having you as a guest. Thank you, Jeff, and I look forward to following up with you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Healthcare on the Horizon. I hope you've enjoyed it and will benefit from it. And if you did like it, please share this episode with anyone you know who you think might also find it of value. And if you have any comments or questions about Healthcare on the Horizon or any suggestions for future topics or guest experts, you can reach me at the website www.jeff-ostroff.com or through my email address jeff at jeff-ostroff.com. Thanks.